The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Pure Energy Minerals returns to the program today with Patrick Highsmith, CEO, discussing the their Clayton Valley project in Nevada, and their offtake agreement for lithium brine with Tesla Motors. James McDonald of Kootenay Silver discusses their high grades of silver in Mexico. Ken Berry of Northern Vertex speaks about their project in northwestern Arizona, slated to go into commercial production next fall with gold and silver assets. George Sanders, president of Goldcliffe Resource Corporation, will discuss recent developments at the company's Pine Grove project in Nevada. Cruise Capital Corporation believes it's positioned to handle the growing demand for cobalt in Nevada. Peter Dassler of Canalaska Uranium returns to the program for exciting news about their strategic partnerships. Jay Martin of Cambridge House International joins us with info about upcoming investment conferences, and I discuss vertically integrated cobaltac mining with a permitted mill in Cobalt, Ontario, Canada. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Jay Martin, president of Cambridge House International, Canada's premier conference company. Cambridge House is presenting the CanTech Investment Conference on January 18, 2017 in Toronto and the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference in Vancouver on January 22nd and 23rd of 2017. Jay, welcome back to the program. Hey, thank you, Ellis. Thanks for having me. You have two sizable conferences coming up in January, the CanTech Conference, a technology show in Toronto on January 18th, and then the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference on January 22nd and 23rd, just a few days later. Let's talk about the CanTech Conference first. It's a conference that I have not yet attended, although I do plan on attending this year. How big is it? How many companies will be there? And what is the scope of the Canadian tech sector? Yeah, great question. So we'd love to have you. I hope you can make it this year. This is our fourth year with the CanTech Investment Conference. This has become Canada's largest tech conference, and it's really a cross-section of the whole industry. So we don't focus on any specific sectors within tech or subsectors. The goal of this conference is to showcase what's coming next in Canadian technology. So we look for up-and-coming companies that maybe aren't so well-known on the street, but have great promise, and look to give some generous returns to investors in the next year, specifically 2017. We'll have about 60 companies on the floor. We'll see about 3,000 investors on the show. It's a one-day event, jam-packed, very exciting, very busy. It's easy to access from a number of U.S. cities like New York, Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia. We encourage folks to attend from anywhere. That's correct, yeah. This show, it's predominantly attended by Toronto, but we'll see maybe 15% come from out of country. Quite a few people fly in from Vancouver as well, right? So we do get a lot of West Coasters at the Cantech Conference. Are the companies attending primarily publicly traded? About 95%. 95%. And have you seen the interest in companies presenting grow from year to year? 
Absolutely. Our first year, I guess it was 2013, I think we had 21 companies on the show floor, and this year we'll have about 60. Compared to Resource, that still looks like a small show, but when you take that as a sample of the Canadian technology industry, it's, it's quite significant. Taking a broad brushstroke, Jay, what do you think about the tech sector compared to the resource sector? It seems as if tech is quite a bit larger comparatively to the resource sector and mass appeal, right? Yeah, it's, that's an interesting question. So, I mean, historically, when we've seen a bull market in resources, tech has had to struggle a little bit, you know, and with this last four or five year bear cycle in resources, tech has really taken off. And I think in the next few years, it'll be a bit different, right? The capital that's flowing to the tech space is sustainable. There are lots of investment banks in the GTA that are very focused on tech and the companies are cash flowing you know they're strong companies they're being upgraded from the venture to the big board and i think this tech bull market or tech industry has a lot more legs than it has in the past one of the things that i've noticed about your conferences is that there can be quite a bit of deal flow that goes on behind the scenes you never know what might happen when you attend these conferences that's right. That's right. Now, were you speaking specifically about resource? I'm speaking about any of your conferences. Yeah. And you know what? Like your ability to access that deal flow only increases by attending shows like this. It's getting to know the analysts and the advisors and the brokers and the speakers and the CEOs, right? Getting on those lists. It's very important. Specifically with regard to the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, a legacy conference for the sector, we can get a real idea, a pulse, if you will, for the resource sector for the year, for 2017, just by attending this particular conference, Jay. That's how we see it. You know, I really am always looking at what happens in January and then, you know, there's like a three, four month lull until TDAC, but it really does set the year off. And it's been a bit quiet the last couple of months. We're expecting excitement in January. How many companies will be exhibiting for this event? You'll see just shy of 240. Which is quite substantial compared to the last few years. Even last year, yeah, it's, it's actually twice the size. What does the breakdown look like for exhibiting companies, whether it be gold, silver, base metals, sustainable, such as lithium, cobalt, etc.? It's definitely a wide stroke. We're seeing an emergence of companies like lithium, cobalt, even vanadium, magnesium, you know, these, these battery tech and energy storage minerals. There's still quite a small percentage in the resource game, and the Vancouver show for sure is still maybe, as a benchmark, 20 to 25% gold companies for sure. However, there's a large population of silver investors on very bullish on silver right now and a handful of very strong uranium companies it's really across we've got the whole industry there and investors right now are quite keen on i guess like the unloved minerals silver is getting a lot of attention uranium is getting a lot of attention but we'll see everything you said you're bullish on silver why is that jay we look at the indicators that are closest to us right and in my circle i guess in my community i'm very close to a lot of the silver companies and so i'm just more up to speed and aware of what they're doing when they're financing how they're financing where the capital is coming from and so i see interest and that makes me bullish and and you're an investor too, correct? I am. And how long exactly has this conference been a fixture in Vancouver? Well, it depends, actually. I mean, potentially 23, depending on how you look at it. The first Vancouver conference was in 1993. This was called the Diamond Investment Conference. And the dates moved around a little bit, but we've been in January in Vancouver with the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference as it stands today for at least 15 years. No matter what level of sophistication you are as an investor, there are a variety of potential opportunities for you. Absolutely. And... You know, the thing is right now, we're seeing a bit of a comeback in the resource space, and this has maybe been 8, 12 months long here, but the industry as a whole has not quite returned. We're seeing a section, call it 20 to 30% of this sector, they've been able to finance, they've been able to move projects forward, and they've been delivering returns to investors. Now, you, you fast forward like two, three years, and we'll see what they call, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships. But the first companies to move will be the ones that set the high water mark in the next bull market. And these are the companies now that are out marketing at trade shows, being productive, being talkative. And that's why it's important to come out today. Let's talk about your speaker panels. 
You've switched to a new format within the last year, and it's worked quite successfully. So what's different is that historically we've always been quite keynote heavy. So one speaker on the podium, they come prepared with their presentation and their speech and they deliver it. And this is great if you are a subscriber of a newsletter writer and your writer's up on stage. But what we've changed is we've really pulled back on the solo keynotes. We organized almost all of our presentations as either Q&As, debates, or panel discussions. And what this does is it allows, if you have the right moderator, and this is key, and we do, it allows us to really ask the tougher questions, get a deeper level of knowledge because the speaker isn't quite in control. And our moderators know that people come to our show to get the inside scoop, the behind the scenes look at what's happening in the resource space. And so by putting somebody else in the driver's seat, generally speaking, a fund manager or a money manager, we can ask tougher questions, we can put people on the spot and really get the hardcore answers that investors came to hear. Vancouver. You know, I've been traveling there frequently for the past 20 years. It's one of the most beautiful cities in North America, and yet there are many people who haven't been there yet. What are some of the other opportunities for visitors aside from the conference? Yeah, and this year has been an anomaly. We've actually had snow in the city for the last two weeks, and that, that never happened. So if you're into skiing, you know, Cypress, Whistler, close by, and great conditions for sure. Good time to be in Vancouver. And of course, the convention center overlooks the water, and it's a fantastic venue for the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Yeah, and we're in Vancouver, San Fran, Toronto. We've been in Calgary, Montreal, Saskatoon, Palm Springs. The Vancouver Convention Center is by a wide margin my favorite venue that we've ever been in. Service is great. The amenities are great. Location's fantastic. It's very modern. I love it. Another additional benefit for attendees is some of these companies and Cambridge House as well have been known to sponsor some fantastic parties. Again, another networking opportunity. A chance to get to know company management a little better. Yeah, they're definitely fun. And there will be a few. There's always a selection of uh, post-show functions. One that I'll mention today is we're actually inducting at this conference, we're inducting Doug Casey into the Resource Hall of Fame. During this presentation, Doug will receive an award, he'll give a speech. We're then setting up a panel of analysts and managers that have known him for over a decade, and they're actually going to roast him. So it'll be a 30-45 minute roast of Doug Casey, followed by a reception right in the speaker hall, sponsored by Sprott Asset Management. We'll be rolling a few bars out right onto the floor. All the exhibitors, all the attendees are welcome to join. The speakers will be sticking around. It's going to be a good time. That's worth the price of admission, which is basically free anyway, right? (laughs) Jay, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for joining me today on the program. I'll see you soon in Vancouver. Yeah, thank you, Alice. I appreciate it. I've been speaking with Jay Martin, president of Cambridge House International. Once again, the Cantech Investment Conference is going to be held in Toronto on January 18th, 2017. And the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference will follow on January 22nd and 23rd. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire Ellismart Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Join me for a conversation with Patrick Highsmith, the CEO of Pure Energy Minerals. Pure Energy. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol PE.B. And in the U.S. as PEMIF. Pure Energy Minerals is an emerging leader in the development of innovative, resource-efficient mineral exploration and project development, notably with lithium. The company is focused on its 9,500-acre flagship lithium brine project located in Clayton Valley, Nevada. Lithium is used in a wide assortment of mobile devices, hybrid electric vehicles, and power storage. Pure Energy Minerals announced last year that the company had entered into an agreement with Tesla Motors for the potential supply of lithium hydroxide that they intend on producing from Clayton Valley. 
not far from the Tesla Gigafactory. Patrick, welcome back to the program. Good afternoon, Ellis, from sunny Vancouver. It's good to be back with you. You have some fantastic news, revolutionary news potentially for the lithium space. Pure Energy reports high lithium recoveries from the successful mini-pilot plant testing campaign. Let's talk about that. Yes, Pure Energy announced some great news. We've just concluded a mini-pilot testing campaign in which we processed about 20 tons of brine by Tenova Bateman's new technology for the recovery of lithium, and our results were excellent. We've just demonstrated much higher recoveries than we've been able to achieve before with lithium brine processing, and the technology is greener and cleaner than the old way to do it. No evaporation ponds needed. We can serve much more of that all-important groundwater in these desert environments, and we get to the end product lithium more directly and faster. So we're quite excited about these preliminary results. Now, is this technology that you're using with your Israeli partners proprietary to Pure Energy? Tenova Bateman Technologies developed this lithium technology over their long history in, in the mining industry, and we're just the first company to take it this far and report these results. We've worked closely with Tenova Bateman. They hold the relevant patents to the use of this technology, and they're a big mining service providing company. So they make a great partner, but certainly our technical team has worked closely with Tenova Bateman, including having one of the top experts in the world in solvent extraction in Israel when this mini pilot plant was running, who was part of our owner's team. So it really is a team effort. But you know, in my experience, Ellis, the best technology in the world just doesn't go very far without the will and the know-how to apply it. And that's what I like about this. We've kind of got a great team going here with a lot of collaboration, and the success we reported is really because of the contribution from all sides. How closely does your offtake partner, Tesla Motors, watch something like this? We expect these results will be looked at closely by a lot of potential off-takers of lithium, Ellis, particularly those who are focused on a green supply chain. In other words, a more sustainable way to get the lithium for those lithium batteries and electric vehicles and other things. Now, we're sure that our friends at Tesla Motors are seeing these results, and of course, we have kind of regular technical update with those guys, and so far, the reception has been enthusiastic to this news, and it's that important stepping stone towards proving later the economic economic application and the scaling up of this technology. But this is a great foundational block and early in first quarter of 2017, we'll be wrapping these results together with the resource update and the other information we need to provide that all-important PEA, that preliminary economic assessment, which will again be that next step in demonstrating the advancement of the project. And we expect that to get a lot of attention from potential off-takers of lithium. Patrick, do you consider yourself a clean tech or sustainability company, a potential leader in the mining? sector in that regard? You know, the interesting thing about the lithium business, Ellis, is we've just been sort of a crossover story right from the beginning. And by that, I mean, we have investors who are kind of values-based, green energy and clean tech investors, as you say. And at the same time, we have the growth story of a mineral exploration company that makes a discovery and advances that discovery through the various milestones to economics. So it is true that when we field calls from investors and people I meet as I market the company really do behave behave very often like a clean tech or a green energy investor. And yet at the same time, we have the familiar base of shareholders and followers who like the idea of going out into the field and making a discovery and and bringing value to some barren piece of desert somewhere as we've done in the mineral exploration business. So I would say we have followers and people sort of tracking what we do who are across those sectors. Are we going to see the end of unsightly evaporation ponds in the lithium space? 
I have to say, as a geochemist, when I look at these results, I'm impressed with the ability of Tenova Bateman and our engineers and some of the other subcontractors involved in this pilot work to adapt the formula of attacking this problem of recovering lithium without evaporation ponds. And I have to say that a little bit of recent research we did has shown that there may be applicability here to brines that are much less favorable than Clayton Valley. As I think I told you a week or two ago, Clayton Valley in Nevada has some of the best chemistry in the world, some of the lowest magnesium and calcium of any of these lithium brines. But you know, when you adapt this technology a bit, you apply it in a little bit different way, you can actually overcome some of the impediments we think with higher magnesium and calcium brines as well. Now, it's early days, but if you ask me, there will be innovative solutions going forward where we may not see wide-scale use of evaporation ponds or certainly not as universally used as we see it today. So we think it's a big step and could lead to other good things, even where the chemistry isn't quite as favorable as what we have at Clayton Valley. Considering your recent news about the mini pilot plant, how is Pure Energy going to roll this out during the next 12 to 36 months? As we've said in the news release, this result is an important foundation for that preliminary economic assessment. So the way we've progressed, we've been drilling, testing this resource, and we've been conducting this metallurgical test work. And now we've sort of wrapped up the metallurgical phase. We have two drill rigs in the field right now. So over the next month or so, we'll be concluding those drill holes, sampling the brines there, and probably updating the resource in, say, February of next year. And that will lead right into the PEA. Now, as you know, that is an important milestone because it demonstrates the potential timing of the project to commercial production, and it makes a lot of important recommendations about these next steps, a feasibility study, a continuously operated pilot plant, and so forth. So that is the gear shifting that we expect to happen in 2017, and that is kicking it into high gear, driving towards the recommendations from the PEA, which will include, likely, a feasibility study and a full-scale pilot plant operating continuously and making a demonstration of product for our potential customers. So that, in my past experience in lithium, with Lithium One, when we get to this PEA, this pre-feasibility stage, that's when a lot of healthy dialogue happens with those potential off-takers, even strategic investors who want to see a project getting closer to production. And when you show that, that your project has achieved that, it really helps separate you from the crowd. Because let's face it, most exploration projects never even get to the PEA phase. You're somewhat of a pioneer in the space, Patrick, and you had the foresight, as we discussed before, to get involved in lithium in 2009. It's a much better environment now than it was then, or even just a few years ago, isn't it? The lithium world is a much different environment than when I first joined the fray in, in 2009. For instance, the mainstream media, the interest from a broader base of individuals, not just those fanatics like us who were enthusiastic back in 2009. But the single biggest change I can see, Ellis, is quite frankly, the lithium battery business itself is projected to have more than $25 billion in sales this year, whereas when we founded Lithium One in 2009, it was an under $10 billion a year industry globally. So I guess the biggest difference is there are, is a healthy list of clients for this new lithium when and if we bring this and other mines online in the sector. So there just seems to be a lot more of attention, a lot more sort of pragmatism behind the need for lithium and where it goes when and if you build a new mine. So it definitely is a different business. It feels more mature to me. And frankly, the conversations I have are much less forward-looking and more sort of right now. And, and let's get things moving as fast as we can. Let's briefly cover the share structure, if you don't mind. 
Pure Energy right now has about 90 million shares outstanding, a little under $6 million cash in the bank. We've been around for a few years now, so we weathered the downturn that affected so many junior mining stocks, and now we're continuing to turn out results. We have plenty of money in the bank to get through the rest of this PEA and well into an anticipated feasibility study. Patrick, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Thank you for having me back, Ellis. It's an exciting time and fun to tell you about it. I've been speaking with Patrick Highsmith, CEO of Pure Energy Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as PE.V and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Mart Report on iTunes. We asked it before you consider any possible investment choice. Do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a recent conversation with Peter Dassler, President and CEO of Canalaska Uranium Limited, trading in the U.S. under the symbol CVVUF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as CVV. Canalaska is an exploration company in Canada's Athabasca Basin, known for some of the highest grades of uranium in the world with 18 projects of their own, holding one of the largest land positions in the region, comprising of up to 1,800 square miles. Canalaska shares a joint venture with the major uranium producer Cameco. Additionally, the company has staked approximately 75 diamond targets in the Athabasca, bringing in De Beers, the world's largest diamond producer, as a partner. Peter, welcome back to the program. You have recent news reporting that you have the potential for a larger uranium mineralized system at Canalaska's Waterbury West claim. We auctioned a project to Cameco and Ariba last year, and part of the deal on that is that we would keep a large royalty on the project, so if they made a discovery, we would benefit down the road. Now it's come to the second part of that deal is where they have to go and drill some holes on that property, and they let us know this week that they will start that program of drilling early in the new year and complete probably by the end of the quarter. Now this is a really interesting project because it's immediately adjacent to one of the world's largest, richest uranium mines that's Cigar Lake, a 200 million pound, very high grade, almost 20% uranium ore body. And there are a number of structures that we see just north of that mine and west of that mine that go through the property that we sold to Calico and Arriva. It's great news for us because very quickly after doing the deal, like it's, it's less than 12 months since we did the deal, they're planning to get a drill on the property. If they have success, then our shareholders have a lot of success. What does that mean potentially for Canalaska shareholders 12 months out or so? Well, the possibilities are that we will have some real value sitting in this royalty that we could monetize straight away. There are a number of people who will pay in advance for royalties, or we could sit on this and see what develops. We're in an elephant country. We're in an area where there's some extremely rich, high-grade, and very, very large uranium mines, and the targets that we initially saw about eight years ago were big targets. So our shareholders will benefit from any drill hole that hits mineralization, whether we hold on to that royalty or whether we pass it on to cash and build a company. Canalaska recently announced that Denison Mines Corporation had resumed exploration on the company's Moon South property. Tell us about it. The Waterbury claim came as a deal about two months after we did a deal with Denison on our Moon Lake claim. And the Denison went in very rapidly in January last year and drilled the first hole and they hit some fairly interesting uranium mineralization. About a thousand counts per 0.1, 0.01% uranium sitting down there at the unconformity. And they're going to go back 
back now and chase that target for about another three miles. It's a five-kilometer grid, so three miles of work. Following that target, as we think it builds to the north, it may be as a series of lenses, but they'll do the first geophysical work here in January, February, and then they'll get on to drilling that after that. On the east side of the basin, two projects that were sort of on the back burner a couple of years ago for us, they've come to the fore, they've got drilling going on them, and they're going to complement what's happening on our major project, the one that we have with Cameco Corporation. That's the project at West MacArthur, which is sort of sandwiched between the two. We've always concentrated on looking for these large uranium deposits, and especially in the eastern side of the Athabasca Basin. There are a string of deposits there. We believe that there were a lot more that could be found if you used new technology. People had stopped exploring for 20 years, but we had a lot of geophysical uh, abilities that developed over those 20 years. We had a lot of computer modeling that we could do. And as we started to do work, we found targets that looked like these other giant deposits. Mitsubishi assisted us, our Korean partners, Coors and Kepco assisted us. And now some of these little peripheral properties are getting attention. But the big daddy for us is what Cameco is going to do on that West MacArthur property, which is only about six miles away from the world's largest, richest uranium mine and right adjacent to where they just made a new discovery adjacent to our property boundary. This bodes well for shareholders with your company, considering that the share structure is very tightly held. I think our company is well recognized as being a very tight structure, 27 million shares out. We're worth around about $10 million value at the moment. However, we've come down from a $40 million high. And so there's a lot of upside for our shareholders just in the short term as uranium prices bounce back, people recognize what's happening in the nuclear industry. But a discovery on any one of our properties would take our shareholders from that increased value probably to something very much more significant. I certainly can't give you a numbers, but when we're looking at a company that's only worth $10 million today, which is Cat Alaska, and we're looking at something that could be worth several billion dollars in the ground, then I think there's a lot of upside for our shareholders. If our shareholders are interested in uranium, we have a company that's well-structured, that's well-organized. We have multiple partners that are industry giants working with us, and we have one of the largest land positions of anybody out there in the Athabasca. Done a lot of work on the ground. We've got significant targets, even on our smaller projects. I've been speaking with Peter Dassler, President and CEO of Canalaska Uranium, trading in the U.S. as CVVUF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as CVV. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. High quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. Join me for a conversation now with James McDonald, President and CEO of Kootenay Silver. Kootenay Silver trades in the U.S. as K-O-O-Y-F and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol KTN. Kootenay Silver is a Canadian and Mexican-based silver exploration company actively engaged in the development of three major silver projects in Mexico, including the La Cigarra Project in Chihuahua, Mexico, and the Promontorio and La Negra Silver Projects in Sonora, Mexico. The company has a leading growth profile highlighted by one of the largest silver asset bases in Mexico and a carried interest to commercial production with a world-leading mining partner. 
Kootenai currently has two drill programs in progress in Mexico and a combined 43-101 silver asset base of over 140 million ounces of contained silver. Forward-looking statements may be included going forward. Today, we join Mr. McDonald on site at the La Cigar Silver Project. Jim, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Alice. Happy to be here. You're at the La Cigar Silver Project in Chihuahua State, Mexico, with some exciting news for us. Feel free to share it with us, Jim. Yeah, I am. I'm right on site. Came down, we put news out here on the first 11 drill holes on our ram structure on the La Cigarra deposit. It's the very first time that structure's ever been drilled. We can trace it for uh, 3,400 meters, 3.4 kilometers, and we've tested only 400 meters of that. What we're showing here is that we've hit good mineralization in 9 out of 11 holes. We've got consistent silver mineralization in multiple zones uh, along that entire 400 meters strike length. So that bodes really well for adding resources there. We 400 meters of strike, we're already building something up. When you look at the big picture and the trend we're on, we're on the extension of a mineral trend that comes right out of the operating Santa Barbara and San Francisco Deloro mines immediately to our south. That trend goes under the valley cover to the south of us and emerges on the other side of the valley. It comes right up into our Ram and Soledad structures and on into our deposit area. So we're working on the same mineral trend, same kind of structure. And they're mining down a thousand meter depth there. So this kind of start here, we're wide open on the Ram structure along strike to hit silver mineralization consistently along 400 meters right out of the gate is very promising start and you know gives us a lot of confidence we're going to be adding ounces here and you know we've got potential for some real good high grade ounces or shoots forming along this trend we are potentially talking about ounces per ton though i'm looking at some of these drill highlights from the ram zone and they're very very strong you know we've got some great grades there to start Right at the gate, we're getting up to 200 grams per ton. You're talking in that sort of case, six ounce, seven ounce per ton range when you talk about ounces. Yeah, it's just the beginning. We're coming back. We're still currently drilling. We're moved over to a structure to the east. Uh, in the new year, we're going to come back to the ram structure. We're, and we're going to step out in wide space drill setups and just have a look at that whole trend and then come back and close in on the results we get from that. So the new year is going to be a lot of follow-up work. I think it's going to be very exciting for us. And not only that target, but the additional targets that remain to be drilled in the immediate area of the deposit itself. And then we're going to get onto the deposit in the new year and finish drilling it off, which has not been done yet. Nothing is certain, of course, but the future looks really bright with regard to the La Cigar Silver Project. The future looks really good. What we're dealing with here is a district-scale project. We're in an established district already. The Prell District, broader scope of the district, there's been some 2 billion ounces of silver discovered or produced. There's two producing mines in the district still, and those are the two mines that sit immediately to our south, south of our project. So we're basically extension of that system. And we've got multiple target areas on the property that haven't even been drilled yet. The deposit itself already has 52.5 million ounces of measured indicated silver and another 11.5 million ounces in the inferred category. It's open in both strike directions. It's open to depth. And then in the immediate surrounding area, there are eight undrilled targets. And we're just starting to have a look at those. And that's what these RAM results are all about. And for a first pass right out of the gate, that's very, very encouraging numbers that we're getting. 
and we're just scratching the surface here. Well, Jim, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. We applaud all the good work that you're doing, and I'm sure that your shareholders may be very pleased as well. I've been speaking with James McDonald, the president and CEO of Kootenay Silver, trading as K-O-O-Y-F in the U.S. and K-T-N on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. High quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Ken Barry, the president and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining. Trading in the U.S. as NHVCF, Northern Vertex Mining is actively engaged in the development of its flagship Moss Mine Gold Silver Project in the historic Oatman Mining District in Northwest Arizona. Over the past six years, the company has worked diligently to establish a substantial gold silver resource and is now focused on advancing the project to commercial mine construction and future gold silver production. Ken, welcome to the program. If you don't mind, give listeners an overview of the company, and let's also talk today about Northern Vertex's recent news. Northern Vertex is in the process of developing the Moss Mine. We're looking to put the Moss Mine from startup right into production over the next seven months. We've mobilized equipment to the mine site. We'll start construction on the road systems and the heap leach pad. This really follows up on a test mining facility that we conducted over a period of about a year and a half that produced 4,000 ounces of gold and 20,000 ounces of silver. And we're now taking the project into commercial production. We're looking to have a, an annual production of about 42,000 ounces per year. This is something that's going to be very profitable. We're looking at an internal rate of return of close to 50% and a payback of just over two years. You just completed an oversubscribed private placement. You also selected BDW International to drill a 3,000-meter program. We've just closed a $1.3 million financing to conduct some exploration, which will demonstrate that we have additional ounces on site and that this project can grow beyond that 42,000 ounce production profile. But in parallel to that, we've also recently closed 7.3 million financing in a convertible debenture and also a $20 million financing with Sprott Lending. The financing is in place to commence construction and really get this project underway here in the next couple of weeks. These are pretty sizable partners. Now, Sprott's very aggressive within the resource sector. Sprott has been very supportive of mining projects, and they're really a leader in the field. We previously had Macquarie Bank as our sort of lender in terms of uh, receiving a credit-approved term sheet. And then shortly after, we had Sprott Lending come to us, and they recognized the profitability of this project and were successful at winning our business. And we signed that $20 million U.S. facility with them just in the last month, and that's given us the ability now to start construction. No matter what the market does, you have a market for the gold you're going to be producing. As we saw with the test mining where we produced the 4,000 ounces of gold and 20,000 ounces of silver, there's always a market for precious metals. My belief is we've seen a little bit of a pullback in precious metals here in the last month or two. That's just a buying opportunity, really. When you look at the overall markets over since about 2011 to late in 2015, the precious metals markets pulled back over 85% in terms of 
equities in the marketplace for junior and development stage companies. So this is really a buying opportunity in our eyes to look at the precious metal sector. As you pointed out, there's always a market for gold and silver. What do you estimate your production cost to be? We're looking at a cash cost of just over $415 per ounce. Our all-in costs will be approximately $668 per ounce. That's in the lower quartile for producing mining company. We're seeing gold trade just under $1,200 an ounce now. If gold were to pull back in that $1,000 range or lower, projects like ours will still be in production while others are shutting down. So in terms of competitive advantage, that lower all-in cost is a real important figure. Doing business in Arizona, which is a great jurisdiction in addition to the built-in infrastructure, must be contributing to those low production costs. Well, as you pointed out, location is very important in a lot of different businesses, but in mining particularly, this is a cost savings for Northern Veritex and our capital expenditures. We're looking at capital expenditures of about $33 million. Our location is one and a half hours south of Las Vegas and about three hours west of Phoenix. In terms of cost savings, we don't have to build a mining camp, which many remote projects would have to build a mining camp, and they can be anywhere from 8 to $12 million to put a camp together for a mining operation. We don't have to carry a, a lot of inventory to support our operations. We've got easy access to the International Airport at Las Vegas, Phoenix just to the east, and we also have an international airport in the town of Bullhead City, which is only about a 20-minute drive from our mine site. That cost savings on having our employees work close to their homes and live with their families and just the overall happiness of our employees is a huge benefit. I've been speaking with Ken Berry, President and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining, trading in the U.S. as NHVCF. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me for a conversation with George Sanders, president of Gold Cliff Resource Corporation, trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Gold Cliff is a mine development company focused on near-term cash flow by applying the phased production business model to precious metals assets. The company is currently funding engineering and permitting activity on the Pine Grove, Nevada Gold Project through a 40% joint venture interest. Mr. Sanders was part of the team that successfully brought the Silvercrest Mine Santa Elena Project to fruition as a mine, selling it off to First Majestic Silver. George, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Why don't you give our listeners an overview of the company, if you don't mind? Sure. In a nutshell, we've repositioned Gold Cliff Resource Corporation from an exploration focus to a mine development near-term cash flow focus, and we're able to do that through our acquisition and entry into the Pine Grove Project in Lyon County, Nevada. This is a drilled-off, modest-sized gold deposit, actually two separate deposits that are ready for permitting and engineering to take us to construction financing for open pit heap leach mine. And we are earning a 40% interest in that project by spending $1.4 million over four years. Explain, if you will, your latest news release, which just came out on the 13th of December. That news release announced the completion of a drill program. We initiated in early November a 14-hole, 6,900-foot drill program on the Wilson patented claims. We were able to get that drill program going very quickly because on patented ground, permitting isn't required, a simple notice of 
beginning of work. So Goldcliffe closed off all of its financing in the third week of October, and we were doing site preparation by the first week in November, and drills were turning by the 10th of November for that program. I see an organizational pattern here, much like what we saw in Silvercrest Mines and now Silvercrest Metals, a company that you're affiliated with. This is a pattern of understating and overperforming and meeting most, if not all, of your goals on time. We did enjoy quite a bit of both operational success and wealth creation success in Silvercrest Mines, doing it again in Silvercrest Metals. It's a model that we have recent personal experience with. It's a model that has demonstrated to investors, shareholders, the street, if you will, that it works and that it can be very profitable. We like the model because it doesn't require enormous amounts of capital, so a corporate share structure doesn't and get diluted to heck over the course of developing the asset. And we like it because these projects tend to be fairly small footprints and quicker to get to positive cash flow. So we're definitely trying to follow the model. The Pine Grove asset fits that model. And this latest drill program allowed us to really move quickly from the stage of saying we've acquired this asset, now we've acquired an interest in this bigger project to actually demonstrate that we've done some work that will add some value to the project and we were able to do that inside of basically a 90-day period. We feel that in order to have credibility with our shareholders and future investors, we simply want to lay out milestones and targets and then we want to deliver on them. So when we acquired the Pine Grove project, we said that we would get drilling done in the final quarter of the year and we were able to accomplish that. When will we see the results from this drill program as far as identifying grades, etc. are concerned? We were told by our assayer the turnaround is somewhere between 23 and 28 days, which means because of the Christmas season, be well over a month. So we should start to receive data from the assay lab in late January. would remind you and your listeners that there's a process once data is received. It's checked and then double-checked to make sure all the assays match the intervals, match the drill logs, then those results are analyzed, correlated, coordinated, and put into some news release form. It will be after the end of January. As we discussed in our first broadcast with you, there have been some spectacular grades reported. Yes, this is formerly a high-grade district, and when I say high-grade, the average recovered grade from 1860s through 1880s mining was one point. 2 to 1.3 ounces per ton, so multiple ounce per ton. There was a drill intercept by Lincoln Mining in, I think, 2010, which exceeded 10 ounces to the ton in one five-foot interval. So there is high grade in the system. It's not easily identifiable. You can't eyeball assay it. This was a reverse circulation program, which yields rock chips rather than a drill core. Sometimes that sort of thing is even more difficult to eyeball. We weren't targeting any high grade in particular. This drilling was in two fences. 
extending the northern boundary of the Wilson resource between where that last holes had been drilled and the claim boundary. We would have extended beyond there because we were seeing favorable rock. We were at the claim boundary and to go beyond that we are now on the Pine Grove located claims which would require a drill permit from the U.S. Forest Service. Now we know that Nevada is a wonderful mining jurisdiction so these things don't take as long as they might elsewhere in the world. Oh absolutely. That permitting is not problematic and one of our earliest priorities in January will be now to permit on the joint venture located claims as opposed to the patented claims. And no, it's not a big deal, but it's still a process and it requires a little bit of time. Whereas, as I said earlier, on the patented ground, you phone the drill contractor, you do your site prep, you put your notice in and away you go. And that's what we were able to do. And this latest news release was just announcing the completion of that program. By the way, how contingent on this drill program will your decision be to advance the project further? Well, one of the important things about results that will come back from this program is that we viewed it as a no-risk drill program. The current resource at Pine Grove, in our view, is more than sufficient to support a 2,2500-ton-a-day open-pit heap leach, and that's what we're moving toward. So our decision to advance the project is not contingent on this drill program. So if we find some good-looking rock, but it doesn't kick as high as we would like. Sure, that's a disappointment, but it in no way is it a project killer. So the drill program only has an upside. And I can tell your listeners that what we saw and we said in the news release was the same kind of rocks that we were drilling in the resource and really only stepped out 200 feet. So we know that that the zones continue. We don't know until later in January whether or not any of those zones carry mineralization similar to the resource grade. But if they do, then obviously we're going to be able to expand the resource. So we saw it and continue to view it as a no downside. There can only be an upside from this drill program. And that's because it was not exploring in a new area and the plan to develop the resource is not contingent on finding more ounces. George, as always, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thanks for having me, Ellis. I've been speaking with George Sanders, president of Gold Cliff Resource Corporation, trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com, and go to goldcliff.com for more information on the company. I'm Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin for Cruise Capital Corp. Trading as BKTPF. Consider this, if you will. The dynamic for cobalt is very similar to what you've seen in lithium. The price for lithium has gone from $6,000 to a high of close to $25,000 in the last year and a half. That would be the equivalent of gold actually being at $6,000 in the next year. Cruise Capital saw an opportunity in cobalt six months ago. Being one of the first companies in Nevada, the day that Pure Energy announced its deal with Tesla, Cruz actually announced its own lithium deal. They were one of the first movers there, and four months later, Lithium X came along. When you become a lithium company, you look at the dynamics of why lithium prices are moving the way they have. Primarily, it's been the electric car industry that has been the driver for that exponential gain in lithium. What the management of Cruz did then was look at what were the main drivers within the battery space within those cars. You had graphite, which has already had more or less a bigger 
pop, with many companies looking for graphite and not many finding it. Nickel is a much bigger industry, and the company couldn't really get in at the early stages. And then cobalt. Looking at the cobalt dynamic, really there's only two or three companies in North America that are cobalt-specific companies of which they've spent a great deal of money on those projects and for the most part are still not at a point where they can really be economic. The cobalt numbers need to be higher to make those companies and the dynamics work correctly. When they were doing this, cobalt was $10. They need about $20 to be in a good comfort level to go into production. Cruz was looking at the dynamics of cobalt itself and there's a niche there. There were few within the sector. What Cruz did was hire a geological firm as they only wanted to find North American cobalt projects. They came back a month later with numerous cobalt showings. They garnered a database of close to 200 different cobalt projects of which they graded from one to four. They came back with a small amount of number one categories and instead of getting one project, they captured eight projects for the company right out of the gate. By having eight projects all with the same highest grade cobalt numbers in North America, it puts Cruz at a distinct advantage to all other cobalt companies that we expect will follow them as they did in lithium in Nevada in the future. Cruz is pleased to announce that it has increased its property holdings or acreage on the Colvin Cobalt Project that returned 13% cobalt in Ontario, Canada. This now comprises approximately 900 contiguous acres. The Coleman Cobalt Prospect is one of four cobalt prospects in Ontario currently held by Cruz to go along with three in British Columbia and one in Idaho. The Coleman Cobalt Prospect is located in the Larder Lake Mining Division of Ontario. According to a province of Ontario mineral file, the property returned grades of up to 13% cobalt and appeared to be an extension of the Trethaway vein. The company looks forward to commencing operations on this prospect to evaluate and follow up on the historic data gathered. The company stated that they continue to expand their cobalt assets at a time when cobalt prices continue to move to year highs. Cruz has been able to acquire what they feel is one of the best collections of cobalt prospects in North America. Cruz's four separate Ontario cobalt prospects, according again to government mineral files, returned cobalt grades of 13% on the 900-acre Coleman Cobalt Prospect and 10.5% on the 900-acre Johnson Cobalt Prospect. The 5,500-acre Hector Cobalt Prospect was a past-producing cobalt mine, and the 1,480-acre Buck Cobalt Prospect returned cobalt grades of 13%. Cruz's War Eagle Cobalt Prospect in British Columbia covers a past-producing mine as well and returned assays of 6.5% cobalt. Based on these projects, management feels that Cruz has amassed a quality portfolio of cobalt assets that have some of the highest historic cobalt grades in North America, which sets Cruz apart from most cobalt companies in the junior space. They believe that 2017 will be a breakout year for cobalt prices, and they are well positioned to take full advantage of this. Cruz Capital Corp. plans to commence full operations on all these projects with their goal to make Cruz the go-to North American cobalt project generator and developer. And management is optimistic about what will be discovered by Cruz on their cobalt properties. Cruz Capital Corp. is actively engaged in acquiring and developing high-grade cobalt projects and politically stable, environmentally responsible, and ethical mining jurisdictions. 
Cruz has already acquired several high-grade cobalt projects across North America. Seven cobalt projects are located in Canada and one in Idaho. Management of the company feels that cobalt is at the early stages of a significant bull market. Cruz Capital trades in the U.S. as BKTPF. That's BKTPF. Cruz Capital Corp. is a paid sponsor of the Yellow Smart Report. Do you have questions that need answers about our sponsor companies? Contact them. Find the logos of all our sponsors on the homepage of our website. Click on them and learn more about our client companies. EllisMartinReport.com I'm Ellis Martin for Cobalt Tech Mining Incorporated. Trading as BNCIF in the U.S. and CSK on the TSX Venture Exchange. Cobalt Tech is very unique in that it has agreed to acquire all of the assets and technology to become North America's first vertically integrated cobalt processing company with the capacity to take mineralized ore to produce high-tech metals. It is the company's goal to continue exploration, mine its assets, bring them into production and to market an all-inclusive operation, crushing, milling, refining, smelting, and marketing, all in one. The company basically having its own infrastructure. What is the importance of cobalt? Why is its use crucial as we continue to move forward in a technologically advanced industrial society? Cobalt is an essential component for cathodes in NCA and NMC-type batteries, or lithium-ion batteries. You can't really make these cobalt cathodes without it. Cobalt Tech President and CEO Antoine Faunier explains. Cobalt actually enters into the cathodes. In a battery, you have cathodes and, uh, and anodes, and the current uh, travels from one to the other. And uh, the cobalt actually is used to making the cathodes. So it's a very essential component of uh, lithium batteries. A supply versus demand crunch is imminent, with 61% of mined cobalt retrieved from the politically unstable Democratic Republic of Congo, where, according to the Washington Post, children are actually using their hands to dig it out of the ground. Much of that same cobalt is headed to China, where that country refines 43% of the world's cobalt. The cobalt is then used in the millions and millions of phones, computers, and other electronic devices that the country produces for much of the globe, in alliance with companies such as Apple and Samsung, believe it or not. That will become potentially increasingly problematic should the U.S. enter a trade war with China, a country which is already attempting to control the world's mineral resources. Tesla is looking to source new raw materials strictly from North America. Other car makers will follow suit, especially as manufacturers are encouraged to keep production within the United States as per the consensus of the new incoming administration. Much of what we consume may be in fact produced in either the U.S. or Canada. Cobalt is also widely used in magnets and wear-resistant high-strength alloys. It has long been used as a pigment for glass, ceramics, inks, and paints. The town of Cobalt, Ontario, Canada is home to Cobalt Tech's Duncan Kerr project with an estimated 1.3 million tons of mineralized stockpiles also housing a 100 ton per day mill the mill is fully permitted and did i not mention that the town is named cobalt needless to say ontario is one of the most mining friendly jurisdictions in the world i asked mr founier what he believed the stockpiles on site consisted of we have one concentrated pile, and this pile is running very high-grade uh, silver and cobalt. It's running 760 grams per ton silver and 0.95% cobalt, whereas the, the waste piles and the, the stockpiles that we've seen on surface so far, we're getting between 5 and 10 ounces to the ton silver, 
and uh, probably around uh, half a percent of cobalt. So that's about 11 pounds of cobalt to the ton. Cobalt Ontario is a unique area in the world because the cobalt is tied to silver, which is abundant in the area. It's a very unique geological environment, and it makes it much more easy to actually estimate a resource on this kind of material and bring it into production because it's not as complicated as bringing a massive sulfide deposit in production. You need a lot less tons, and you can process the material directly. So it's a very economical process. Cobalt Ontario is home to the first mineral discovery in northeastern Ontario that would open the way for the prolific Timmins, and Kirkland Lake mining camps. Historically, 484.6 million ounces of silver have been produced in Cobalt, Ontario. Global expansion in production of the lithium-ion battery makes the acquisition of the Duncan Kerr project a significant value-add for Cobaltech Mining. The company has approximately 57 million shares outstanding and trades near 19 cents today. It may be a very nice investment opportunity in the cobalt space. That's not for me to say. That's your decision. Invest at your own risk. For more information on Cobaltech Mining, visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Cobaltech Mining trades as BNCIF in the U.S. and CSK on the TSX Venture Exchange and is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Stay with the Opportunity Radio Network for continued reporting on this expanding and growing resource story in the cobalt space. I'm Ellis Martin. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.